I don't know if you've picked up some something, some glassware recently, you know, like something ornate, like a vase. I, I'm thinking of a vase that have, you know, lots of nice creases and flutes in the glass. And it, it looks ornate, it looks beautiful because of the pattern and the way that it all fits together. And so with glass, it is see-through, it is clear. But as you notice with an ornate piece of glass like a vase, it is not all as equally see-through as all the other bits. Some bits are really clear and able to be seen through, but other bits, it's a little bit harder to see through. It's a little bit more obscure. If the glass didn't have that, if, you, if you, the glass was perfectly clear, then it would also lack some of the complexity that makes up its beauty. And you know, as we come to God's Word, there's something of that in God's Word, that Although it is clear in many places, there are some times where, the, where it is not as clear as other places. And for you theology nerds, you would understand that we're talking about the perspicuity of Scripture. I'm not going to test you on that after that morning tea. But what we're talking about here is that although the message of God's Word is very plain, the Gospel can be broken down into very simple pieces, there are some parts of the Scripture that it is not as clear what it means, or what God is getting at, or what God wants us to do on a particular area. But all of God's Scripture is God-breathed and useful. I'm going to come back to that a little bit more. Sometimes our vision is obscured, even though we're all looking at the same thing. But God's Word is always true and always good, and on the whole, it is always clear. What we're looking at this morning is a shorter passage We've been making our way through some relatively large chunks, like we did, I don't know what it was, a chapter and a half last week, but we're trying to keep them in their kind of narrative portion, so we talked about Jephthah as a whole, but now we're down to a portion that's only a few verses long and covers three judges, but this is one section that goes together. This, in a manner of speaking, is our last reprieve before we plunge into the hellscape, which is the remaining chapters of Judges. This is a moment where we get to take a breath. Like when we looked at Tola and Jair a few weeks ago, after the whole fiasco with Abimelech, Tola and Jair were in some sense a breath of fresh air, a little reprieve of, with all, the, with all of the stuff that was going on around Abimelech. And now we've just uh, covered Jephthah and the awful thing that he did to his daughter, this situation that he put himself in, and it's, it's getting pretty rough, and so... Isban, Elon, and Abdon is like another moment to catch our breath before what comes next. But speaking of what we have uh, looked at so far, previously in Judges, there's a mismatch here, sorry, between the note on the screen and what, if you're following along on your outlines, it should be previously in Judges, we have seen a whole bunch of different Judges. And one of the refrains that we have seen is something along the lines of this. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Now, the seven years is, you know, sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. Sometimes it's the Midianites, sometimes it's the Moabites, you know, that, that changes. But the thing that doesn't change is that Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord is the one who gives them over to the oppression of surrounding nations and foreign gods. The foreign gods that they were worshipping, like the Baal and the Asherah. 
And so we end up with this cycle, a perpetual cycle all the way through judges. Lord responds to their sin by handing them over. They suffer the consequences of their sin and then they realize what they've done to themselves. They cry out to the Lord for deliverance. The Lord hears them and raises up a deliverer. We call them judges in the book of Judges. And the judge brings that victory and peace that the people desire. They serve the Lord for a time. And then what happens? They did evil in the sight of the Lord. It's this perpetual cycle. And so we've covered most of the judges by now, actually. I wonder, uh, children, let's see if we can remember them all. Oh, um, and I'll ask the children first, and if the children miss any, then I'll give the adults a chance. You've got to keep your Bible closed, no cheating. All right, what, what are some of the judges? Call them out. Sorry? Jeff, Jeff, or as we shortened his name, Jephthah. Yes, I mentioned him, yes. Samson, we, yep, we haven't got to him yet, but he's coming. Deborah, and who went along with Deborah? Yeah? Othniel, yes, but uh, just coming back to Deborah for a second, it was Deborah and Barak. And yes, we had Othniel. Gideon, good. I think we just need to remember the ones that only get a couple verses. So we have, sorry, Ehud, yes. All right, now we're down to, we've got three left. Shamgar. And I said the names of the other two a little while ago. Tola, and what was the other one? Oh, yeah, Jade was Tola and? Okay. Anybody else want to have a crack? Who was the last one that we haven't mentioned so far? Jair, that's right. Good, good, well done. I'm glad that uh, we're able to pull those all together. And of course, once we add in the three that we look at today, that will make the even 12. But you see, with 12, you would think, oh, that must mean one from every tribe. Unfortunately, it's not quite that neat. But if you were thinking that, then you're on the right track. Because the fact that we have 12 judges put forward in the book of Judges is the writer of Judges communicating to us that this is basically representative of the people of God. Here is 12 judges, and they are the ones that judged in Israel. They were the deliverers of Israel. So, and they come from all different parts of the country. So while it's not quite neatly one from each tribe, it's, it's, that, it's still that kind of representation, that there is judges from the 12 tribes of Israel all across the nation, and we end up with 12 at the end. We've had many judges with many stirring stories of faith and triumph, yet the further we've gone down this spiral, this repetition, this cycle, the worse and worse they have become. Last week, the best guy they could find to deliver their people was an illegitimate child who was uh, um, basically a mob boss in exile. He was a gangster in exile. And they said, come and be our leader. Now, I mean, we know that his heritage uh, isn't something that changes his worth or value. We talked about that last week. But in the scheme of thinking about society and, and who, like rulers and that kind of thing, your legitimacy, as in, you know, who your, parent, who your parents were and whether or not your parents were married or, or, or whatnot, that was, a, that was a big deal. So the fact that they got a guy that was, even in their eyes, not a good guy, shows that 
there was, it was pretty bad. And then to, to, to press home that point, what does he do? He goes and makes a rash vow and ends up putting himself in a situation where he's promised to sacrifice his daughter as a burnt offering. It's pretty bad. And just on that, I've, as I've been thinking about Jephthah over the week, he's put himself in this situation where there seems like there's no way out. Either, either choice he makes is sin. And I reckon that there was one way out. I reckon that if he had redeemed his daughter's life with his own, that would have been a way out. Because in some sense, he would have still been fulfilling his obligation to the Lord and he would not be breaking, uh, and he would not be sacrificing his daughter. That would have been the way out of his vow, I believe. And in fact, God himself does something like that with us. God doesn't put himself in a corner. But there's something, you know, we might call it a, a competing in God. It's not really competition. But what we end up with in God is that we see that we're sinners and God hates sin. We see that we're God's people and he loves his people. But God is holy and he will not let sin stand in his presence. God wants to dwell with his people. So God made a way for his people to be with him. He made a way for his people to be with him by sending Jesus to be the atoning sacrifice. He sent Jesus to redeem his people so that they could be cleansed, so they could be freed from the curse. God made a way for him to be with his people by dealing with the sin. And so that God could uphold his justice and holiness as well as show his love and his mercy to his people. But coming back to Judges here, we see that despite the fact that there's going to be 12 Judges, despite the fact that they've tried Judges from all over Israel, we've never come up with a really good Saviour. The best we've had is Othniel, who was connected, interestingly, to the tribe of Judah. I wonder if that's of any significance, that the best judge they found was from the tribe of Judah. As, we, as I mentioned before, we're in this little passage now in Judges where we're spending, we're dedicating a whole week to it, so to speak, in, in church. And you might ask, why are we going to spend so much time in these few verses instead of just pushing through them and getting on to what seems more important or more exciting? But as we said, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is profitable for God's people. All of it comes from His mouth and is good for us as we read before all scripture is god breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of god may be thoroughly equipped for every good work um, it, it, yeah, it's literally so that the man of god may be thoroughly equipped for every good work and because paul is writing to timothy a young man that he's trying to encourage to serve the lord with his life but as the niv represents here it is so that the servants of God, the people of God, might be equipped for good works, every good work. So, my question is, would you be taught by God? Well, go to the Word. Would you be rebuked? Go to the Word. Would you be corrected like a wise man? Go to the Word. Would you be trained in righteousness? Go to the Word. Would you be complete? 
then go to the Word. Would you be equipped for every good work? You need to go to the Word, including these few words in Judges. These few words are going to be profitable for us, even if they do not reveal some amazing, profound truth or teach us how to live. They're still valuable and important words from God to His people. And if you are a Christian, if you believe and trust in Jesus, then you are His people. Here, this short passage is helping us understand God's big picture of salvation, but also the little picture of God's providential work throughout history. And so without further ado, let's think about Isban, Elon, and Abdon. We've got this short list here of three judges, mentioned one after the other, with a little bit of detail on both. Let's read them each together. After him, Isban of Bethlehem led Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. He gave his daughters away in marriage to those outside his clan. And for his sons, he brought in 30 young women as wives from outside his clan. Ibzan led Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried in Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulonite led Israel 10 years. Then Elon died and was buried in Ajalon. Ajalon the land of Zebulun. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Piriathonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Piriathonite, died and was buried at Piriathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. What you'll notice from these three judges is that if you look up the geography of where they're from, you'll see that one is from the south, Ibzan from Bethlehem in the south, Elon from Zebulon in the north, and Abdon from the more centrally located Ephraimite hill country. So we've got these three judges from across the breadth of Israel. But there's still a real big sense of repetition here. We've got these three guys... Each of them, you get a brief mention, and he died. And it feels like the passage before where we looked at Tola and Jair. Just a few brief verses about who they are and what they've done. So, what are the repetitions that we see in this passage? And just before we dive into the repetitions, it's good to remember that when the Scriptures repeat things over and over, that's, a, that's something that we need to hear. Scripture, sorry, repetition in Scripture is saying something. Repetition in Scripture is saying something. And in fact, that's why we read the Bible passages before the sermon and then we go through it again when, we are, when we're preaching on it because we need to be soaking in it and it's helpful for memory. So here we see some repetitions in these few passages. Each of these three fellows judged Israel or it said led Israel in some of your translations. Not all of the Judges are described as judging or leading, but particularly here, they are each said to be judging Israel. And then, one of the things that we've noticed in the repetition here is that there is large families. And so there's a couple things going on here with these big large families. Firstly, the, we're having flashbacks to Gideon. 
Gideon had a big, large family through, presumably through multiple wives, or at least he had one concubine. And so he had, he had a large family and that's where the whole Abimelech issue started. And so we're going, okay, maybe is this kind of the legacy of Gideon, where these leaders of Israel build up these large families and kind of take on a kingship? Is there dynastic stuff going on here? Is there nepotism going on here? I think Jair's 30 sons each were a mayor of a town in a region. But something else interesting is going on here. If you look at the pattern, we have Gideon has a massive family. Tola, we're not told anything about his family. And then Jair has a big family. Then Jephthah's in the middle. And then we have Abdon. Hang on, which, which order are they in? Isban has a big family. Elon, we're not told anything about his family. And then Abdon, we're told that he has a big family. So we've got these two brackets of three with Jephthah in the middle. And what does Jephthah do to his family, to his only daughter? We have here this bracket that kind of points out the blessing that these others had that Jephthah loses because of his own foolishness and a rash vow. It points to the, the absolute, absolutely terrible legacy of Jephthah in that, in some sense, he doesn't have a legacy because he cut it off. So these big families are a sign of God's blessing. It is, it is a wonderful thing. We're told in the scriptures that, um, you know, that, it's, that children are a blessing from the Lord. Uh, it's a wonderful thing. But we are a little bit, not unsure, the way that these guys went about having these big families is a problem because they would have had to have had harems or at least multiple wives. And so, yeah, this is, this is a sinful thing before God. We've touched on it a little bit the last couple of times that we've talked about it, but it's worth taking a moment now to, to ask the question, well, what's wrong? What's wrong with this? harem, kings having harems, what's wrong with polygamy? Well, God made us male and female, and for a husband to leave his parents and cleave to his wife, not wives, wife, in a covenantal union. And in that, that union, that physical thing that God made in the world, it represents the heavenly reality of God and his church, or specifically Christ and his church. There is one Christ, and there is one bride of Christ, the church, and they come together in a covenantal union, and that is represented in our earthly romantic unions. There's something powerful and significant about our sexuality that can only be healthy in the relation of this exclusive relationship. All other expressions of sexuality, from hooking up to prostitution to homosexuality and polygamy, this is the case here, are all, and I use this word carefully and deliberately, they're all perversions. Perversion is when you take something good and you twist it and change it into something that is not good. It's twisted into something different. And so some people opine that Christians have an unhealthy obsession with sexual ethics, but I would reject that because it seems like the world around us is the one that seems to have the obsession 
because they're always pushing it. It's always present. It's always being, always trying to be transgressive and break the boundaries, trying to push it in people's faces or undermine God through it. But part of the reason why it is so, we have to talk about it so regularly is because if it's such a problem for us, for the world and for us inside the church to do the right thing in God's eyes. We need to speak about it because this is an area where there is trouble in the world and in the church. And we need to speak about it because we are God's creation as sexual beings. God made us to be this way. This is good, but it can be misused, like most other good godly things in the world. God made it to be a significant part of who we are. Even for those who pursue the single life, most often they will have to face this aspect in their person even as they have to put it aside for their sake of serving God. But lastly, uh, this is an area where we're easily tempted to mess it up because it touches on an area of our being that is so powerful and emotive. And so it's like nuclear energy. A nuclear reactor can be super helpful and beneficial when it is contained and used in the right circumstances. But when, it is, when things go wrong, it has drastic results. It has terrible consequences that harm many, many people. It's a disaster when a nuclear reactor goes bad. And it's a disaster when our sexuality goes bad. It's important to get right before the Lord. And so we need to see what he has to say about it. Repent where we have sinned against God and others. And then keeping our bodies in submission to God we live out this part of our identity in a healthy way. It's healthy for us. It's healthy for our families. It's healthy for our community. And best of all, it is glorifying to God. It is pleasing in His sight. And so although we say thank you for big families and lots of sons and daughters for these guys, we say no thank you to their polygamy. What are the repetitions have we seen in this passage? We see uh, the theme that comes up again of wealthy, uh, wealthy people. The fact that they had donkeys for all of their kids was a sign of wealth because it was like the, the, the ancient equivalent to having a fancy car. You, you only had a donkey if you could afford to keep it. Just like you, you only have a fancy car if you can afford to keep up the insurance and the maintenance costs. Because they ate a lot and... If you were wealthy, you could have a donkey to ride around on. One of the other repetitions we see here is that each of these judges has small times, small times of leadership, of judging in Israel. They're having decreasing effectiveness. Earlier in the book, we were talking like, we're talking many, many years. We're talking 40 years. We're talking large chunks of time. And the, and the peace that they bring is large chunks of time. In one case, it was 80 years, I think, from Ehud there was 80 years of peace after his reign. Two generations, great. But down here, we're talking about seven years, eight years of leadership. Things seem to be getting progressively worse. It's not just a a linear fall away. There's ups and downs, but the trend is downward. We also see with these three guys that each of them is buried And this is significant because often the burial of somebody is mentioned, when it is mentioned and where it is mentioned, signals to us that this was a respected person. 
that there was something about their life that was good or honourable. And you'll notice this, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe in kings, when it lists the kings, basically you only hear where the good kings are buried. They don't tell you where the bad kings are buried. And we notice something similar here in the way that these guys, we're, we're told where they're buried, so we're led to believe that there's something special or, or respectful, good about them. But the repetition is also something that drives home the fact that they didn't live very long. They died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Just like in the genealogies of Genesis. After Adam, we saw that Adam and Eve introduced death into the world, and then there was this progression of, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. It's, we get a, a little kind of echo of that here with this short list. But as we go through these three repetitions, we also notice what isn't repeated. What are some of the things that are missing from this list of judges that we've seen elsewhere in judges? We see that there is no deliverance. There is no deliverance mentioned by these guys. Why? Are we at a stage now where judging doesn't actually mean delivering and protecting God's people, it just means being wealthy and, and kingly? We, we miss that there's no rest, there's no peace mentioned. How long did they, the, their reign um, bring peace and prosperity for? We also don't get any mention of the Spirit of the Lord resting on them. Interesting. No deliverance, no peace, no rest. But having a look at these couple of verses here, verses 8 and to 10, just... There's a, there's a level of ambiguity here about what Isban was doing. When he went and uh, had 30 sons and 30 daughters, and he gave his daughters in marriage to those outside his clan, and for his sons he brought in 30 young women as wives from outside his clan, there's a level of ambiguity here. What? Because they're outside his clan. Outside his clan is very large, a very large picture. That's, that's the rest of humanity outside his clan. We're not actually told who these other um, you know, sons, wives, so daughters-in-law, where they came from, or who he married his daughters to. It could be that he married them to other Israelites, and if that's the case, then that's a, good, that's a fine thing, that he married uh, his... inter-clan into, into marriage between the 12 tribes of Israel, that was fine. But because of the ambiguity, we're left to think, well, maybe, perhaps he was intermarrying his sons and daughters with... Canaanites. And if that was the case, then we wouldn't be surprised, really, because of the problems that the Israelites have had throughout the book of Judges, maintaining their separation from the Canaanites. If they're taking on their gods, their religion, we wouldn't be surprised to hear that they were intermarrying with the Canaanites. And this isn't a problem of uh, ethnicity. This isn't God saying, I've got a pure genetic race or anything like that. This is about identity as who they belong to. Are you God's people or are you people that follow false gods? Are you, do you belong to God's people or do you not? And you're not supposed to marry people who don't belong to God. And interestingly enough, that'll come up in Ruth when we cover Ruth in a couple of months' time. But what we had missing here was that there was no deliverance, that there was no peace or rest, and we didn't see the Spirit of the Lord. And so what are we to do with this passage? 
Well, I think this passage reminds us of a few key things. It reminds us in part of our need for a saviour, our need for what these guys were missing. We need the deliverance that's not mentioned. We need the peace that's not mentioned. We need the rest that was missing. But like the judges that they did have, we need judges that are better. We need judges that have, that are, you know, prosperous, but not for the sake of building up their own, their own little kingdom. We need, we need, a, we need true and lasting prosperity. True prosperity that is for all of God's people, and that doesn't end up in worshiping money or objects. We need a judge that doesn't die. We need a judge that, well. I'll come back to that. We need the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord was missing in this passage. And that is something that we need. And this is something that all of these things can only be found in Jesus. Jesus is the one who delivers us. He delivers us from the wrath to come. He delivers us from the kingdom of darkness. He delivers us from our sin. Jesus is the one who brings peace. Because he is the one who delivers us, we can find our peace and our rest in him. And he doesn't just take us and wash us clean and put us in a neutral position. He actually gives us his righteousness so that we don't just stand before God as as one with no righteous deeds but no sin. We stand as before God with one who is full of the righteousness of Christ. We stand before him. Because of the work of Christ. We need a judge who doesn't die. But what we got was a judge who did die. Jesus died in our place to deliver us and bring us into that rest and that peace. He is the one who died for us. He died, but he didn't just get buried and left as a historical footnote this guy this one this man who is God incarnate went into the grave and conquered the grave and rose from death and now he sits at the right hand of the father and he will come again to judge the living and the dead he is a beautiful wonderful judge a judge that surpasses all the judges of Israel he is a deliverer that surpasses all the deliverers of Israel he brings a peace that will not end it will be forever for eternity and he is a judge who came in the spirit of the Lord but did not only act out of God's spirit but he said when I depart from you I will send my Holy Spirit to be with you and even now his Holy Spirit dwells in our midst only Jesus can provide all of the things that the judges of Israel only showed us shadows of or showed us all of their the the weaknesses and the gaps in their ability Jesus makes it all up we're told in Colossians that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, I know for many of you, this is something that you already knew. 
but I want to remind you and encourage you afresh that this is your identity. If you're in Christ, you are in God's kingdom. So don't keep playing around with the kingdom of darkness. Leave the darkness behind and run to the light. Throw off the sin that so easily entangles and walk in forgiveness in the righteousness that Jesus gives you. Enjoy and rest knowing that the work has been done. You don't need to go and keep making sacrifices. You don't need to go and keep trying to earn God's love. You don't need to go and try and keep making atonement for all the bad things that you have done. Jesus made atonement. He made atonement on your behalf. So rest in his peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us a judge that far surpasses all the judges that came before. We thank you, Lord, that you, you have given us a deliverer who delivers us fully and finally from the kingdom of darkness and leads us into the kingdom of light. We thank you, Lord, that his reign is a reign that never ends. We pray, Lord, now that you would help us to walk in light of this and not be like the Israelites who so quickly turned away generation after generation. But Lord, with your spirit inside us, please enable us to remain faithful throughout our lives and to teach and to lead those who come after us to do the same. We pray, Lord, that by the power of your spirit, you might overcome all of the issues that we see so clearly coming to the, front, to the fore in Judges. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.